Amen. Amen. As I get up this morning, I'm mindful of the fact that, um, that we have people every week at this service that tune in online through the miracle of technology, and it is a wonderful uh, and an amazing thing. You know, people who just check us out online to kind of go, okay, would I feel comfortable going there or not? Uh, so welcome if that's you, but, um, but also people who are part of this family who just can't be here for whatever reason. And I want to speak and, and say something to one of those families. So Bill and Gail Kelly are a part of this church, have been for decades, but they haven't been around much in probably the last seven or eight years due to illness and, and sickness. Uh, and we desperately miss them. I know for a fact that they are watching this morning because we have elders at their home to serve them communion at the end of the service together with the rest of us. And I just want to say, Bill and Gail, you tuned into the right service because it's all about the gospel and that's what they're all about. And this whole section is full of students and they love students and we're so excited to have you guys with us today. So it's just like phenomenal. It is phenomenal. And uh, so God bless you guys. Um, as Matt said, we are continuing this conversation about what moves us. And in the first part of the conversation, what we've been talking about is worship that moves us. And today we are going to talk about baptism and communion. And kind of as he intimated at the beginning of the service, uh, that might not seem overly exciting to you. Uh, you might not be thinking, wow, praise Jesus. Today is the day that my friend finally came to church and Tom's going to talk about baptism and communion, you know, because you assume that that is somehow not relevant to their life, to my life, to your life. And let me just say that's a false assumption. Baptism and communion are hugely relevant to all of our lives, and here's the reason for that. It's because they're grounded in the gospel, and if the Christian gospel is true, if the gospel is real, guys, there is no more relevant thing for human beings in the whole of the universe than the gospel and all of the things that are grounded in it. How could it be otherwise? Think about what the Christian gospel is. The Christian gospel comes to me and it comes to you and it says, hey, newsflash, God exists and he is the creator God of the universe. And I just want to pause and step back from that statement and say, okay, so if it is true that there is a creator God of the universe and if it is true that we are in fact his creatures, is there a more important discovery that you can make than that? I'm going all in on that's relevant, but it's, it's more than that. So it comes to us and says, yes, there is a God who is great and glorious, and he is the creator God of the universe. You're his creatures. And not only does he exist, but he has written the reality of his existence, and not just his existence, his power, his wisdom, his creativity, his beauty, his magnificence into the very fabric of the created order in which we live, which is why at times we see beautiful vistas like this. And they take our breath away. In those moments, we sit there in stunned awe and silence, and we feel something. We feel beauty, and it feels like joy. We feel power. We feel this otherness, the, the presence of this something or this someone who is so far beyond us, thankfully. 
But the Christian gospel comes to us and says, not only is there a creator God who does in fact exist and you're his creatures, and he's written the reality of his existence and of his glory into the fabric of the created order in which all of us live. But beyond that, it says that he has written the reality of his existence and glory into our own human hearts. And we experience that too. That's why every one of us, at least at some point in life, looks at our lives, looks at our stuff, looks at what we've accomplished, looks at what we failed to do, looks at who we've become and who we haven't. And we think to ourselves, well, I guess that's it, right? I mean, is that it? We wonder, isn't there more? Why would we wonder that? Why would we wonder about meaning? Why would we long for purpose? Why do we want to know that the life that we've lived has some kind of significance and value? Why is it that it's somewhere deep down in the deepest recesses of our hearts, there is a longing for and even a suspicion of eternity? It's like there's a memory deeply imprinted upon us somewhere down deep in there. And when we're honest and when we're quiet, we believe that something more than this does exist. Why would we look for things like meaning and purpose and all of those things if all of us everywhere are nothing more than the accidental creations of some impersonal natural event or force? Like, where would that thought even come from? Why does it exist? A creator God, we're his creatures. He does exist, written into creation, into our hearts. But more than that, he comes to us, the gospel does, and says, okay, so... Here's the deal. You were made for a purpose. Your life, in fact, has meaning. You were made together with everything and everyone else in the whole of the universe by this creator to live, and this is the key word, entirely for him, which is not at all egotistical. That's not vanity on God's part. My goodness, if God is in fact the ultimate being, if He is in fact the greatest good, if He is in fact the highest value in the whole of the universe that there is, isn't it right and good that He would make everything and everyone, including every one of us, to live our lives entirely for Him? Think of the value in that. Think of the honor communicated by that. Think of the significance conferred upon us by that privilege. It's remarkable. But what's the problem? Because this too is part of the Christian gospel. The problem is that, I mean, none of us have done it, at least not entirely. So what does that create, practically speaking, for us when we don't give to God entirely what we owe to God and is our duty and privilege and responsibility to give? It creates a debt, doesn't it? You buy a car, you get a loan, you know, you make payments. If you fall behind in your payments, what happens? Then you get letters, you know, and then eventually somebody comes and takes your car in the middle of the night from you. Or you kind of catch up and you go, I'm going to save a little money here. I'm going to cut back on my expenses. I'm going to give an extra hundred a month until, until we work it out, you know, until I'm all caught up. And here's the problem with the debt that we owe to God. We can't do that by its very definition because by its nature, we can't. And here's why, because it's not like I can come to God and say, okay, Lord, Let's just be honest, okay, today I did not live entirely for you, and we're not even going to talk about those four years in college. So let's just deal with today. Today I did not live entirely for you, but not a problem, because tomorrow I'm going to live two days for… No, wait, I can't do that. Okay, not a problem, because tomorrow I, I'm, I'm going to live entirely for you, and then I'm going to use that day to pay… I can't do that. I already owe him tomorrow. I miss a moment, and I'm done. So where does that leave us? because it's relevant. It leaves us with no option but to come to the very God with whom we have accrued this debt 
and to ask him in mercy and in grace, out of the goodness and the overflow of the love of his heart for us, his creatures, to do for us what we cannot possibly do for ourselves. And what is that? It is to pay the debt that we owe to him for us, which is what the Christian gospel is all about. It comes to our great relief and rescue, and it says, listen, that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the invisible, intangible God, through a supernatural conception, took upon human flesh and occupied real space and time. This world, as one of us, the God-man, which incidentally explains the whole of the life of Jesus, as you find it in the New Testament Gospels. We come to the Gospels, so many of us, and we read it and think, walk on water, come on, you know. Heal the sick, make the blind see and the lame walk and the paralyzed. Like, that guy doesn't even have to go to physical therapy after he's healed. Like, he's like, he's good to go. Raise the dead. Tell the world that on the third day, after having died for the sins of all those who trust in him, he will what? Rise again from the dead. Okay, if I claimed to be able to do all of those things, that would be abject lunacy, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be ridiculous. But if I was the author of life, if I was, in fact, the creator of all things, if I was God-made man, which I'm not, but Jesus is, wouldn't you expect those kinds of things to happen? Like, far from mystifying you, you'd be mystified if they were not a part of his narrative, if they weren't a part of his story. Anyway, the gospel comes to us in our debt and says, listen, there's good news. God so loved you that notwithstanding all of your failures, he entered into real space and time out of sheer love for you, took upon himself flesh and blood like unto your own, lived the good is God life that none of us have lived entirely for God, and then having accomplished that in our place, laid down his infinitely valuable life on a cross that he might fully satisfy the debt past present, and future for everybody who simply comes and says, you know what, I, I, this is a debt I can't pay, so I claim the payment of Jesus on my behalf, suffering, dying, buried, and then on the third day, the author of life did what? He took up his life again. Surprising? Well, I mean, if it was me, yeah, but if it's him, not surprising. Expected. It's what he said he would do. The debt has been paid and accepted. He's raised from the dead to offer life and forgiveness and relationship with God to all who believe. And I understand that the idea of resurrection is not something that we 21st century Americans, you know, really spend a lot of time thinking about. But if you have not spent a lot of time thinking about it, I really would encourage you to do that. I would challenge you to study the resurrection of Jesus Christ from every perspective you can find, because I'm confident that in the end, much to your surprise in this moment, as I say this, I get it, you're going to discover that the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the only good explanation for the empty tomb that every serious scholar agrees was left behind. And that the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the only good explanation for the transformation of his disciples who went from huddling in fear, thinking, you know, my goodness, they just crucified the Lord, we're next, to running out into the temple courts and confronting the very men who just crucified Jesus and proclaiming the thing that none of them wanted to hear, none of the Jews, none of the Romans, and that is that Jesus is in fact alive again from the dead. 
Think about it. They have left the account of the life of Jesus with all of his miracles, including his resurrection, behind to us at the expense, literally, of their lives. These guys lost their families, they lost their businesses, they lost their reputations, all but John, who by the way was tortured and exiled to the island of Patmos. Every single one of the rest of those guys died painfully horrific deaths because they would not unsee what they had seen. They wouldn't recant. They wouldn't say, well, we embellished the accounts a little bit and actually the resurrection thing. No. Why would they do that if they uniquely understood it was all a farce? Hey guys, I've got an idea. We all love Jesus. He was really moving and persuasive. So here's what I think we can do to leave him a legacy. We're going to embellish our accounts of his life. We're going to just beef it up a little with some miracles, walk on water. I think that's impressive. That made the final cut, put it in there, you know. Raised from the dead on the third day, that's got to be a part of it. And we're going to do that, and then here's what's going to happen. It's going to cost us our businesses, our reputations, our families, and we're going to die horrific, painful deaths, and we are going to gain, wait for it, nothing for doing this. And then, of course, I think the literal physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead really is the only good explanation for billions of lives that have been transformed by a risen Jesus, including mine and a lot of yours. Okay? And that's where baptism and communion come in. What am I saying when I am baptized? I am saying publicly that I identify with Jesus and with his people. That in this Jesus is my only hope in life and in death. We've talked about water in the past month, and we've said that in the Bible it's not just cleansing, but it represents judgment and death. I'm saying as I receive the waters of baptism, what? That I believe that Jesus endured the waters of judgment, if you will, so that I might be free entirely from them. That I might be cleansed, that Jesus endured the waters of death so that I might have life, and life abundant, and life eternal. It's remarkable. And then what about communion? I mean, why do we do that? Why regularly do we come to the table? We regularly come to the table because we regularly need the spiritual strength that we find at that table as we come to the table and take up the elements of the bread and of the wine that are symbolic of the body and of the blood that were broken and shed for us. And that remind us that no matter how big we've blown it in life, maybe this week, maybe this year, maybe on my whole doggone life, no matter how big I've blown it, these things tangibly left to me by Christ remind me that my debt is paid, past, present, future, and it's all good. Because of him. Because of who he is. Because of what he's done. And the Apostle Paul teaches us that as we come to the table, we'll remember too that he hasn't just left and is never coming back. Like, okay, well, that's it then. But we look forward to the day when he will come and he will silence the noise and he will order the chaos and he will fix all of the unjust things in this world. And he will remove all oppression. He will balance every scale. He will right every wrong for all of us and for eternity. And he will give us a place in which there is no wrong. It's a beautiful and amazing thing. Guys, baptism and communion are relevant because they're rooted in the gospel. And if the gospel is real and true, Oh, then there's nothing more relevant. 
About every four or five years here at Rio, Dr. Warren Gage and myself uh, take as many people as can go from Rio or your friends, family, whatever, uh, to go with us to Israel, the biblical land. And one of the things that we do on those trips, it's a really moving experience as we go to the River Jordan and we baptize people in the River Jordan. So here's a picture of Haley, who is our middle child five years ago. Uh, she's now a sophomore at Florida State. And so she is about to be baptized in the Jordan. But here's the dilemma. So most of the people that we take on the trip have already been baptized. And, you know, you've been baptized once. You don't need to be baptized again. And we understand that. It's a once-for-all good thing. But, but they still want to get in the Jordan, right? I mean, you know, like, and I want to get in the Jordan. So we're going to do this thing because we're at the Jordan for crying out loud. And so here's what we've done. We've done ceremonies in which we remember or commemorate the baptism of the people who go on the trip. In other words, we gather them together and go, hey, let us tell you what this is and why it's moving and why it's significance. Jesus in your place, once and for all. Judgment that you're free, death that you might have life. That's what this means. And so now here in the Jordan River, what we want to do is to commemorate all that that is for you. And we want you to recommit yourself publicly proclaiming that Jesus is your only hope. We get to the end of the trip and we go to a place called the Garden Tomb. And the Garden Tomb is almost certainly not the actual tomb that Jesus was buried in and then came forth from the dead from. That's probably uh, almost certainly in the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulcher. But man, it feels like the place. You know, it, it is a first century tomb. It matches the description perfectly. It's a garden. It's a beautiful place. And people from all over the world, all these different people show up. Chinese and Africans and, and French and the German and the Americans and the Australian, like, and they're all in their little groups in this garden and you can hear them singing songs and you'll recognize the tunes, but you, you don't recognize the words. You can sing it in your language, get the idea, and it's beautiful. And what do we do at the end of the trip? We take communion together to remember that as big as we've blown it in life, because of Jesus, you know what? It's finished. Debt paid, all good, set free, and more than that, a day that we long for, when all rights, all wrongs are righted, all rights are upheld, a new world emerges, is coming. But since I can't take you all to Israel, though I will tell you we're going next year, so there's information at the Information Center and online, but since I can't take you all to Israel, here's what I can do. I can remind you that the Holy Spirit of the living God is just as alive and present right here, right now, as He is when we go over there. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, guys. There is nowhere that He isn't, and He's moving here too. And I can invite you to be baptized or to commemorate your baptism if that's what you'd like to do individually or as families. It's pretty amazing. And then to come to the table in communion. So that's what we're going to do in a moment. Matt's going to come up in just a second and he's going to lead us with Mason uh, in the baptism of some students that have come to faith in Jesus and have brought their friends, which is remarkable and awesome. Um, we're going to do that together. And then we're going to take communion together after these guys do. And I would just remind you, like, if you're a believer, take communion. If you're not yet a believer, we are so honored that you are here and so thrilled that you get to hear this message together with us. 
But what we'd encourage you to do during communion is to just consider what Jesus offers to you and to realize that he's offering it to you too. The communion table is for those who say, all right, I've already done this. But it holds forth a promise to those who have not yet already done this. And it's saying, I'm available to you when you make that profession of faith. So come see us after the service and let us talk with you, pray with you, join us for Alpha and learn all about that online.